I'm Johnny B. Good, the host of the podcast Creating a Con, the story of Bitcoin. This podcast dives deep into the story of Ray Trapani and his company Centratech. I'll explore how 320-somethings built a company out of lies, deceit, and greed. I've been saying since a very young age that I was going to be a millionaire. If someone's like, oh, what's your best way of making money? I'm like, oh, we should start some sort of scheme. Listen to Creating a Con, the story of Bitcoin, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I am the ferryman. In the shadows of the afterlife, the ferryman of souls guides America's most influential spirits to their eternal rest. Where are you taking me? Are you death? This road is not on any map. How much for a ticket? All I ask for in payment is a tale. I don't know who got to Kennedy first. And the devastation those first bombs caused. I've never been to hell, but I know intimately the hymns of the damned. Binge this season of The Passage now. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Listen to the highly anticipated 100th episode of Tank and Jay Valentine's R&B Money Podcast with artist Chris Brown. Even working with you from Carrie Hilson, Adonis, mm-hmm. back in the day, I was 15, 14 doing that album. So like I said, I was in school like, yeah. okay, this is how you do it. This is how you make a song. There's a verse, a pre-chorus, and then a hook. I didn't know none of that. You learned I, that over a summer, bro. That's what I, it felt like. That's what it felt like. Listen to R&B Money on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Rivals is a production of iHeartRadio. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Rivals, the show about music beefs and feuds and long-simmering resentments between musicians. I'm Steve. And I'm Jordan. And this is the end of our epic trilogy on Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young, and it's been building to one man, Neil Young. Oh, yeah. I'm sure... He would have it no other way. He is <laughs> the godfather of CSNY. He's got the other three in his back pocket. When he calls, they come. When he walks, well, that's just fine, too. His <laughs> passive-aggressive mind control is like Jedi level. I mean, you know, I, I know I said in an earlier episode, Crosby's my favorite member of CSNY, but Neil is easily the most fascinating. And he's also the best. I mean, let's be real. <laughs> I mean, I said in our previous episode that I love Stephen Stills the most out of the original three, but... There's no question that Neil Young as a solo artist just towers over the other three guys in this band. I mean, he truly is like one of the greatest singer-songwriters ever and one of my favorite guitar players ever. Um, But what's often forgotten now, like some 50 years later, is that when he joined Crosby, Stills, and Nash, he wasn't really a star yet. And In fact, I think you could argue that joining this band made him a star, and then he proceeded to completely outshine the rest of the band for like the next several decades. I love how when he was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 95, he got up there and said, it's basically been a solo trip. That was his quote. It's a solo trip, which is really interesting when you consider Buffalo Springfield, Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young, Crazy Horse, The Stray Gators. You know, he played with Pearl Jam, Booker T, and the MGs. But it's also a really, you know, insightful, accurate statement for him. I think it's an important clue into understanding the complicated mind of Neil Young. Yeah, we all love Neil Young because he has that strong individualist streak you know he has this mercurial nature that has caused him to make all sorts of like perverse decisions in his career that seem like the antithesis of like smart show business management but 
when you look at like his work within the confides of CSNY, I don't think there's any question that he actually was like a secret showbiz genius. I think in a previous episode, I compared him to Machiavelli. Uh, and <laughs> I think that's really true. I mean, he played the dudes in CSNY like a fiddle and not only won the band, but he won it in a rout. I can't wait to analyze how he did it. So without further ado, let's get into this mess. Well, Neil's entry point in the CSNY was through Stephen Stills, and they met playing clubs together in uh, Neil's native Canada back in early 1965. And they were really immediately impressed with each other because they saw something in the other that they themselves lacked. You know, Neil admired Stephen's really like soulful, gritty, sort of traditionally good voice. And Stephen admired Neil's early songwriting attempts, which I don't think Stephen was really doing much of at that time. And it's funny, given all their fighting in later years and their very different personality types, I think Linda McCartney would describe them as chalk and cheese, it's really easy to forget how they came from really similar family backgrounds. They both had these really complicated relationships with their sort of largely absent fathers, and they had these sort of domineering mothers, and no matter what they did, nothing they ever did was good enough for their mothers. And so it kind of fostered this superhuman drive and ambition that they both have but it manifests in really different ways. Like Neil is sort of the scrawny kid that can always win a fight. He just excels at self-preservation, whereas Stills has the self-destructive streak that I think would ultimately burn him out. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. Yeah, we covered this in depth in our Stephen Stills episode. Um, And if you listen to that episode, you know that Neil has murdered Stephen Stills (laughs) over and over and over again over the years for the reasons that you said that – to some degree, like, Stills is putting the knife in himself while Neil is, like, whispering in his ear and driving him insane with his <laughs> passive-aggressive mind control. But, yeah, it, it really is striking, like, how different those guys were and how you would think, just looking at them superficially, that you think, oh, Stephen Stills is the more assertive one and Neil is more passive. But, really, Neil was able to assert himself in a more subtle and ultimately effective way. So Neil, in your analogy, Neil is Hannibal Lecter, and then Steven is multiple Meeks. <laughs> exactly. Got I think it. that's okay. perfect. <laughs> so Neil and Steven go their separate ways in, in these Canadian clubs. Steven, as we said in the previous episode, goes to L.A. in search of session work and monkey stardom, which doesn't work out for him. Uh, Neil stays in Canada and forms a group called the Minor Birds with Bruce Palmer and a very, very, very young Rick James. And I just, I, I want to throw this in there because if you haven't listened to it, please. Have you heard the line of birds ever, Stephen? Yeah, it's a, they it's are wild. like, yeah, they're one of the like great what if stories in yeah. rock history. Like if that could have actually happened, they could have been like, you know, a cross between like Funkadelic and the Rolling Stones. Or the Chambers Brothers or something. Yeah. Yeah. Unbelievable. They almost made it to Motown, but Rick James was arrested for going uh, AWOL from the Navy and the whole Motown deal got torpedoed. So Bruce and Neil drive to L.A. in search of Stephen Stills, and they're driving Neil's Pontiac hearse. And they're looking all over L.A., can't find Stephen. They eventually find him in a traffic jam going the opposite way down Sunset. Neil does a Yui, and Stephen sees Neil in his rearview mirror in a black hearse. And I think that's the most perfect metaphor for their relationship, professional relationship at least, that I can possibly think of. Whenever Stephen thinks things are going well, Neil Young pulls up behind him in a black hearse and uh, and murders him, really. Yeah, exactly, exactly. It, it, it's very telling that he's driving a hearse because right. he's there to uh, drive away Stephen Stills' corpse, essentially. <laughs> so they, they form Buffalo Springfield, and they start fighting 
pretty much instantly. I mean, it, it, it's always thought it was funny that Neil's uh, early onstage attire was this like buckskin fringe Native American outfit. And then Stills would always wear these like Stetsons and cowboy outfits. They were literally cowboys and Indians on stage, always fighting. And Neil later said, I think it was in the uh, Jimmy McDonough biography, Shaky, said, with Stephen and I, it was two young guys, two musical forces trying to coexist in a band that we knew was really good, but neither of us had planned on the other being a force. I think that pretty much sums it up. It was equally strong wills, but totally different personalities. And Stills was much more, as you said, openly domineering, and he would criticize Neil, you know, missing a note on stage. And I guess whenever they would play the Whiskey A Go-Go, the waitresses knew to, like, listen really carefully during their set. Because after the show, there'd always be some fight that they'd be called in to sort of referee on. Be like, you know, Neil missed a note. Didn't you hear it, right? And then Neil was like, no, 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 come on. I, I did it fine. And, yeah, I always felt bad for the waitresses at the Whiskey. Uh, so, yeah, the fighting was pretty much instant. Yeah, and I think, you know, when we think about Neil Young, we always think about a guy who hits every single note. You know, that is really the genius of Neil Young. He never misses a note. It's <laughs> very precise. Yeah. You know, I, I think if you were to look at these two guys in 1966 and you were going to take a bet on who was going to have the more lasting career, I think the smart money at that time would have been on Stephen Stills. You know, he's this blonde, oh, totally. square-jawed, good-looking guy, this cool, bluesy voice. He's writing basically like conventional like folk rock songs, like doing it really well. But then you have Neil Young, who is this awkward, gangly guy with like a with a whiny, high pitched voice. He seems a little shaky on stage to allude to the Jimmy McDonough book. And he's writing songs that are, you know, much more eccentric and don't necessarily have that immediate pop appeal that some of the early still songs had. But we can see, of course, in retrospect that these things that seemed like negatives about Neil Young in 1966 all ended up being positives because Neil Young, he's an artist that you have to lean into in order to understand. You know, he makes you come to him. And I feel like that's true of like a lot of the greatest artists of all time. You know, they don't seem like they're pandering to you. They make you concentrate mm. on what they're doing and it forces the audience to focus in much more than they normally would have. And I actually feel like Neil Young was self-aware of that. And that's part of his genius, that he knew that he could be himself and not compromise, and it would actually make him more charismatic. Yeah, I could never figure out if he knew that that was something almost in the Dylan mold of like, no, I'm just going to be myself, and that authenticity will will resonate with people, or if he just truly didn't give a damn. <laughs> I mean, was, I guess it was probably yeah, some combination yeah, it, of both. With Neil Young, it's always hard to tell like how much is just his own nature of you know being stubborn and just being focused on his own muse and how much of it is like this canny understanding of like how to get ahead. I mean, I do think that those things aren't mutually exclusive. You know, I, I think on one hand he was yeah. this very idiosyncratic artist, but on the other hand, he was also ambitious and he, and he wanted to be a star, but yeah, I mean, early on in Buffalo Springfield, I think these things that we're talking about, they seemed like liabilities, like his singing voice, for instance, he really wasn't not allowed to sing all that much in uh, Buffalo Springfield, like on that first record, Neil wrote some wonderful songs like nowadays Clancy can't even sing and flying on the ground is wrong. But those songs were, uh, he didn't sing those songs. Richie Furray sang those songs who had a much more sort of conventional country rock sounding voice. And a lot of his songs too, like they weren't picked to be the singles or, or they were, I, I think uh, like Burned was a single, was flying on the ground is wrong a single too early on? 
I think nowadays Clancy can't even sing and burned with the first two Buffalo Springfield singles. But again, yeah, Neil wasn't allowed to sing them. And, and Stephen would be awful to him. He, they, they would finally let him sing occasionally on stage and Stephen would get on the mic and, and apologize to the crowd for what his bandmate was about to, to, to do to them and flick his terrible voice onto them. And Neil would go off stage and go to his dressing room and cry, which is something I cannot imagine Neil Young ever doing. I know. Awful. I know. That's 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 such a sad story. I know Stephen Stills too also had an issue with Mr. Soul originally because he thought that that song was basically too derivative of Satisfaction by the Rolling Stones, which truth be told that song does sound a lot like Satisfaction, but it's also yeah. a pretty amazing song on his own. And that that's is like one song. of the like few Neil Young songs that Neil was actually allowed to sing. And I feel like by their second record, which was Buffalo Springfield again, Neil was allowed to step into the four a little bit more. Like he sings on Mr. Soul. He sings Expecting to Fly, which is the big epic on that record. But he also had the issue of epilepsy at this time, like where he started having um, seizures on stage. It seems like maybe that was somewhat uh, precipitated by like all the stress that was going on in that band. But again, that's like another factor that where you look at it and you're like, you know, if you're looking at him in like 1967, 68, you're just thinking like, is this guy like too fragile, you know, to have a long lasting career? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you do wonder which came first, the epilepsy or the stress in the band, because his uh, his his ex-wife, Carrie Snodgrass, would, would later say, you know, he used to to basically say, oh, no, I feel a seizure coming on. I, I can't go to this dinner party or I can't do this or that. And he would say, you know, I wouldn't put it past Neil to fake a seizure to get out of things. So. He would later say that he withdrew from Buffalo Springfield because of just the toxic energy there and all the stress. But also, you know, who knows? He could have used his affliction with just saying, you know what, I don't want to deal with this. And I have a doctor's note saying I don't have to. (laughs) That's right. Yeah, I mean, again, it just seemed like in Buffalo Springfield, as great of a band as that was, it just seems like it turned into a toxic situation pretty early on. And that, I think, combined with Neil's just, again, that, that resolute, nature that I think he already had where he wanted to be in control and he knew that he wasn't going to be in control if he was in a band with Stephen Stills. Although that was a lesson he was going to like not follow, I guess, in the very near future. But like he ends up quitting the band like pretty early on. Right. I mean, their whole relationship was just hanging by a thread when they were recording Mr. Soul and Neil really wanted it to be the single. And Stephen, as you said, thought it sounded way too much like Satisfaction. And he was pushing his own song, Bluebird, which is an amazing song. He put Neil through hell during the recording of it. I think the engineer, Bruce Botnick, said that uh, Stephen just hectored Neil so much that he ended up having a seizure oh like in God. the studio during the sessions for it. So not a pleasant time. Bluebird's the A-side. Mr. Soul's the B-side. Neil, at this point, has made it clear to the rest of the band that he wants out. And he he agrees to stay on through the, um, the Monterey Pop Festival in June of 67. But then the band lands a gig on the Johnny Carson show as the first rock band on Carson, which I I still think is nuts that they chose that cool of a band. I thought it would have been like, you know, Yeah, like the association or or something something like that. I mean, yeah, someone on Carson's staff was pretty hip. Totally, yeah. I never understood that. But Neil was not into this. He thought that just being on Carson, he was worried that the Buffalo Springfield would have been basically a curiosity for middle America, just to basically point and laugh at and like, you know, like, like creatures in a zoo or something. So two days before they're due to tape the show, he bolts. He he vanishes. He doesn't answer anybody's calls. He goes to hide out, I think, at his girlfriend's house in the San Fernando Valley. And he's just gone. And then he's gone for the uh, Monterey Pop Festival, too. And they get Crosby to fill in for him. And 
Stills would later say, you know, this happened again and again, right exactly when I needed Neil was the time that he left. He left right when I needed him most. And I think that that, you know, is the wound that never really heals between them two. I mean, Stills has all this ambition, and he, I think on some level he probably feels like he needs Neil. And um, right when they're at a crucial juncture of getting this massive mass media exposure, Neil bolts. And so Neil is working on his own song called Expecting to Fly, which is this amazing track he does with uh, Jack Nietzsche, who was Phil Spector's longtime arranger, and uh, it is a wild song. I always kind of thought that that was like one of the first like Laurel Canyon singer-songwriter songs as opposed to like, you know, a band folk rock song. I mean, it, what do you think of that song? It's a great track. And it really shows that like Neil Young at that time had aspirations to be almost like a Brian Wilson-like figure, like where it would be very, because, you know, we always think of yeah. Neil Young as being very raw in the studio, working with Crazy Horse and, you know, playing live and leaving the mistakes in. But he also has this strain like where he was obsessed with studio craft and he would construct songs like Expecting to Fly. His first solo record is like that too. It's much more sort of, it's much more studio polished than like his subsequent records would have. But, you know, again, that's like part of the sort of, you know, there's so many contradictions in Neil Young. You know, we were talking earlier about how on one hand, he seems to be almost like anti-show business. And then on the other hand, he's been incredibly canny in how he's maneuvered in his career over the years. And, you know, there's so many paradoxes like that in Neil Young's career that you just have to reconcile, like if you're trying to understand him. But, uh, you know, just just talking about all this, you know, the, the Monterey Pop thing and, you know, him like not wanting to be on television and all that stuff. I, I just feel like, and we're going to see this, I think, as this episode unfolds, that like no one has gotten more mileage out of saying no than Neil Young or like the threat <laughs> that he could say no. You know, and I think we're going to see that like later on in the history of CSNY where like he had traumatized these guys so much that they were afraid of him. And they basically, yeah, they, yeah, they, they, they said up front like we're afraid that he's going to reject us. So it just caused them to cede any control of the band like when Neil Young would come into the picture. Like, you know, they just would lay down for him basically because he had said no so many other times in the past. And like with Buffalo Springfield too, like, you know, he quit the band and then he rejoined the band again. And then he ended up quitting again, I guess. Like, was that in like 68 or so? Yeah, he rejoined basically because the DJ started flipping over the, the Bluebird single and playing his song, Mr. Soul, instead. And so suddenly now that his song was getting all this airplay, he decided, oh, maybe, maybe being back in Buffalo Springfield is not so bad after all. All right, hang on. We'll be right back with more Rivals. <laughs> My name is Johnny B. Good, and I'm the host of the new podcast, Creating a Con, the story of BitCon. Over this nine-part series, I'll explore the life and crimes of my best friend, Ray Trapani. I always wanted to be a criminal. If someone's like, oh, what's your best way of making money? I'm like, oh, we should start some sort of scheme. You see, Ray has this unique ability to find loopholes and exploit them. They collected $30 million. There were headlines about it. His company, Centratech, was one of the hottest crypto startups in 2017. It was going to change the world, until it didn't. I came into my office, opened my email, and the subject heading was FBI request. It was only a matter of time before the truth came out. You can only fake it till you make it for so long before they find out that your Harvard degree is not so crimson. How could you sit there and do something that you know will objectively cause more harm in the world. 
Listen to Creating a Con, the story of Bitcoin, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I am the ferryman. In the shadows of the afterlife, the ferryman of souls guides America's most influential spirits to their eternal rest. Where are you taking me? Are you death? This road is not on any map. How much for a ticket? All I ask for in payment is a tale. I don't know who got to Kennedy first. And the devastation those first bombs caused. I've never been to hell, but I know intimately the hymns of the damned. All 12 episodes of The Passage are available now. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Imagine you ask two people the same exact set of seven questions. I'm Minnie Driver, and this was the idea I set out to explore in my podcast, Mini Questions. This year, we bring a whole new group of guests to answer the same seven questions, including actress and star of the mega-hit sitcom Friends, Courtney Cox. You can't go around it, so you just go through it. This is a roadblock. It's going to catch you down the road. Go through it. Deal with it. Comedian, writer, and star of the series Catastrophe, Rob Delaney. I shouldn't feel guilty about my son's death. He died of a brain tumor. It's part of what happens when your kid dies. Intellectually, you'll understand that it's not your fault, but you'll still feel guilty. Alt-rock icon, Liz Fair. That personal disaster wrote Guyville. So everything comes out of a dead end. And many, many more. Join me on season three of Mini Questions on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Seven questions, limitless answers. So he rejoins, but then, um, you know, it's just more of the same. Uh, constant fighting. There was a drug bust. And they were busted at, I think, Stephen Stills' girlfriend's house. And everybody was sent to jail except Stills, who I guess escaped out a bathroom window and ran for it. And I always wondered, like, how much that played a role in, like, you know, their how much that pissed Neil off. I mean, because Neil was, like, risking deportation by by getting arrested and everything. And Neil and uh, Stephen just booked it. So I, he's never really spoken much about that. But I can't imagine that that really endeared uh, Stephen <laughs> to Neil very much. But he eventually quit again. The band was on its last legs in the spring of 68. And then uh, and then they were done, I think, in like April. So Neil ends up making his first solo record. I think that comes on 68. It's a self-titled record. And it's a good record. Although, again, it, it seems a little weird in terms of like how we think of Neil Young now, because, you know, I think of Neil Young either as the acoustic troubadour or as like the raw garage rocker with Crazy Horse. And like his self-titled record is this sort of like, again, it's more in the vein of like expecting to fly, like him maybe indulging his like Brian Wilson side, like wanting to make this sort of immaculate studio record. I think the Neil Young that we all know and love, like really comes into the fore with his second record, which is Everybody Knows This Is Nowhere, which is his first with Crazy Horse. And of course, this ends up being a very fruitful uh, relationship uh, for Neil Young. And you know, I, I talked about this a bit in our Stephen Stills episode. I think the thing with Neil Young is that he often will surround himself with musicians that I think aren't quite as good as him. And I think there's a couple reasons for that. You know, speaking of like Crazy Horse specifically, I think one, coming out of Buffalo Springfield, he probably wanted to be in a situation like where he was going to be the unquestioned leader. You know, there was not going to be 
another Stephen Stills-like figure in Crazy Horse. I guess Danny Witten would be like that to some degree, but you know, I don't think Witten was as much of an egomaniac as Stephen Stills. Like He wasn't going to have power struggles with Danny Witten in Crazy Horse. And I think the other reason, too, is that Neil Young realized that if he had this very simple and primitive backdrop, that it would just allow him to shine all the more. And when you listen to those Crazy Horse records, I mean, I feel like the formula is you have this great sort of lurching rhythm section, and out of that explodes these like majestic Neil Young guitar solos that go on for several minutes. And it's such a great, it's such a great formula. And it's a contrast to like what Stephen Stills did when he started Manassas, for instance, which was this overloaded band, lots of great players, lots of people showing off. It's very busy. Insanely busy. And it's great, but like it doesn't quite have the power that Neil Young has with Crazy Horse because everything, the backdrop is so stripped back, it just allows him to really step forward. I think it's hilarious like how the other guys in CSNY thought about Crazy Horse. They hated Crazy Horse so much. And David Crosby, I think, has been the most vocal. Did he have some quote where he was like, you know, they shouldn't have been allowed to be musicians, they should have been killed? They should have been shot at birth. <laughs> they can't play. David Crosby, quote machine, David Crosby. And that's him on the record, too. You know, again, like we talked right. We talked about that in our Crosby episode <laughs> about how, like, when Crosby was calling Daryl Hannah the devil or whatever, you know, he claimed that was, like, off the record. This is Crosby. This was very much yeah, on the Crosby record. Crosby on the record saying that Crazy Horse should be killed. Uh, should be Because they yeah. can't play, which is hilarious. But, I mean, I think, you know, that was probably... Another thing that appealed to Neil Young about Crazy Horse as the years would would roll on about how different that world was from like the CSNY world, that he could just go into the garage with Crazy Horse and wouldn't have to deal with like a lot of the star trips that were uh, in CSNY. But we talked about this, you know, we've talked about this in our previous two episodes in the series about how Neil Young ended up in uh, CSNY. We could probably just blow through it quickly here. But I mean, basically the idea was they made that first record, that 69 record with, you know, the three guys on the couch. And then they needed someone to pump up their sounds as, as a live act, right? And Neil Young was the one that ended up kind of fitting that bill. Yeah, they were considering uh, Steve Winwood and a couple other people, and they landed on Neil. And I've spent a lot of time trying to wonder why Steven, who'd finally become free of his personal nemesis, decided to bring him back after all these years of Neil making his life in Buffalo Springfield a living hell. It's one of the big questions of this series, I think. It's the unresolved question. My best guess is that it was to sort of fulfill the unfulfilled potential of Buffalo Springfield. Right. You know, I think about those couples that, you know, not to put too fine a point on it, but it's like a couple that has great sex but can't stand one another. The draw is so strong, but the good stuff that happens between them is born out of this, like, toxic torrent of resentment and rage. But right. Stills is convinced that they can make it work. They can actually really make it work. I mean, I think there's almost like a brother thing there, too. Like where mm. I think we'll talk about this a little later in the episode because I think their relationship has sort of evolved in like almost like a heartwarming direction in like later yeah. years. But yeah, I mean, I think that there's a realization there that like, you know, we are connected in a way that like I'm not connected to other people. Like I think Stills and Young are much closer than like they are to like Crosby and Nash. You know, like those guys have something separate on their own. I guess in a way, in the same way that like Crosby and Nash had their own thing going on, you know, yeah. Stills and Young, and even like how it could be toxic. Although really, I mean, I guess it's funny because Stills was way worse to Neil Young early on, but I think over the totality of their relationship, Neil Young has been harder on Steven Stills in a lot of ways. I don't know, man. It's, it's such a weird dynamic, man, like how these guys just invite pain 
from each other over and over again. Like, it's true for all the guys in this band. I think, I mean, Neil initially was very suspicious of getting in the Crosby, Stills, and Nash, too. And he drags his feet, I think, for like a month or something. And as usual, he derives his power by making himself scarce. And I, I guess, you know, people want what they can't have. And that probably went a long way in sort of forcing the band's hand into making him not just a side guy, but a, but a full partner, you know, name in the band name kind of thing. And, um, you know, obviously Neil was very aware that he was joining, you know, the American Beatles, the most celebrated group in the country. And it wouldn't be a bad thing for himself. I mean, to take his own group. I mean, because it's important to say that Neil's, you know, name recognition was nil at this point, really. I mean, he was, it would have been like, you know, Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young, and then like, or Crosby, Stills and Nash, and then like Gene Clark or something like that. Like somebody who, who was really sort of more of a, a cult fringe figure. And by joining this group, as you said at the beginning, would just expose him to this huge audience. And I think he was upfront about this in later years too, where uh, he said, you know, Crosby, Stills and Nash and Young is going to make me a lot of money. And it definitely plays a big part in me being here. And um, he also made it clear from the start that this was not his first priority. He could come and go as he pleased and express himself in whatever other projects that he wished. So, I mean, it's really an incredible setup for Neil. I mean, there's, there's never a downside at all. It could only help him. Yeah, exactly. Especially because, like he said, he always had that back door that he could walk out of. And it's really funny to me, too, like how Neil, almost from the beginning, was able to, like, both benefit from being in this band because again as you said they were like the american beatles at this time they were hugely popular and neil young you know he was known from buffalo springfield but like his his first two solo records didn't sell all that well like at the beginning so you know he was really coming in, into this great situation but then he could also like use that band to boost his own credibility by putting them down i mean yeah it makes in fun a way. Of them. and like i feel like there's an early example of that like when they performed at woodstock because you know all four of them were at woodstock i think it was like the second show they ever played there's that famous clip of steven still saying that you know we're scared shitless you know <laughs> playing at this show and then the movie comes out and neil young refuses to be a part of the film so you only see the three other guys in there and we can link that to all the other examples that we've talked about about neil young sort of like making himself the story by taking himself out you know like i'm the story now because i'm not there and that's really kind of the story of like that film appearance i also feel like you know, and he wouldn't have known this at the time, but it ended up being, a, I think, a very advantageous decision by him because you look at Neil Young, he's like one of the only people of his generation that had like serious like credibility with, with like punks and like indie rockers and like later like the grunge rockers of that time. And I think it was because he was from the 60s, but like he could distance himself from some of the big 60s signifiers, like in a way that David Crosby couldn't. Like David Crosby is so endemically 60s when you look at him. Where if you're like a punk and you hate the 60s, he's like an easy target to make fun of. Whereas Neil Young is like right next to David Crosby in a lot of things. But it's like, oh, he's the guy that didn't want to be in the Woodstock movie. So it's like he almost has this, this like weird credibility there because he didn't do that. Or he wouldn't allow himself to be in the movie. I'm going to make myself the story by being absent because I have integrity. Yeah, it's genius. It's incredible. It's a genius move. And like, I feel like, again... Maybe he was doing that because that's how he really felt, and I'm sure that's the case. But you can't tell me that on some level he didn't realize the smartness of that from like just the image and career standpoint. Yeah, I mean, this would happen again and again and again. I mean, even when you're when they're recording their first album as a as a quartet, Deja Vu, he was absent really for most of that. It was really a Crosby, Stills, and Nash album 
featuring Neil Young on, you know, I think he's, two of his songs, I think he only played on five of all the songs on the album. And Crosby, Stills, and Nash, their debut had been pretty painless to make because Stills had been sort of the unchecked musical director. And with Deja Vu, it was not that way at all. It was almost like the White Album. Sessions were really kind of fractured and strained. And um, Neil famously hated all the sounds of, of the Buffalo Springfield records. And he was very loath to relinquish control over the sounds of his songs. So when he would get in there and record his tracks, Helpless and Country Girl, he basically viewed it as like, that's his business. He would record the songs, take the tapes, go to his personal producer, David Briggs, to get it all set and mixed on his own and make it sound the way he wanted it to sound. As opposed to, you know, and Stills is sitting there like, well, wh wh what are you doing? This is a, a band and you, you can't just take your things and do it completely by yourself. And oh, by the way, I engineered the first album we did and it sold a gazillion copies. <laughs> I know what I'm doing. First of all, why don't you trust me? And second of all, how dare you? Right, exactly. And again, we talked about this in our last episode, but yeah, Stills is just like, dude, I'm doing you a favor, man. I'm literally adding millions of dollars to your bank account by inviting you into this band that I started. And now you're pulling this stuff again? You know, yeah, just, just murdering Stills in the studio during Deja Vu. It's like, get the black hearse out, Neil. Get the hearse. <laughs> Haul Steven Stills away. One story that really makes me laugh is about the song Teach Your Children. And this occurred years later. Of course, Teach Your Children is like one of the big hit songs from Deja Vu that Neil Young doesn't play on. And uh, Graham Nash was always like really upset about that because like they had the session. Neil knew when it was and he just didn't show up. <laughs> and Graham, you know, and I, and I think justifiably took that as like a sign of disrespect. It's like, hey, like we are here for you. Why can't you play on my song? It just it makes me feel like you don't really take my song seriously. And like years later, Graham Nash had, I think, his first opportunity to license that song for a commercial. And I think that song has been like in a million commercials since then. But Neil Young was upset about that because his name was on it. And he had also just put out that song, This Notes for You, from the late 80s. You know, that song where he's like making fun of corporate <laughs> advertising. Yeah. yeah. And, and Graham Nash was basically like, dude, you didn't play on the song. So like, <laughs> I don't really care what you think. I'm going to do this. I'm going to make bank. You should have shown up to the session, you know, 20 years ago. You know, maybe I would care about your opinion. But, you know, I'm giving you the heads up out of a courtesy, but I'm going to take the cash. So I think that's pretty funny. You know, the other thing, too, and I'm curious to hear your thoughts on this. You know, I was revisiting Neil Young records for this episode, which, of course, is always a great thing to do. Pleasure. I love listening to Neil Young records. And I was really struck listening to After the Gold Rush and Harvest. I don't think I had fully made this connection in my mind before about how much those albums sound like CSNY and how... If you listen to the albums Neil Young did before he joined that band, you know, he wasn't doing the like the folky songs with lots of harmonies. You know, that's not everybody knows this is nowhere. He's not really doing that on the self-titled record. But then you get to After the Gold Rush, which came out six months after Deja Vu. So perfectly positioned to like kind of capitalize on the success of that record. You have songs like Tell Me Why, Only Love Will Break Your Heart that just have these, like, again, beautiful melodies. They sound like they could have been on a CSNY record. And that's, you know, doubly true of Harvest, you know, which has Heart of Gold, Old Man, Needle and the Damage Done. Again, all very sort of CSNY sounding records. And, like, it occurred to me that, like, Neil Young, he was able to jack their sound <laughs> and do it by himself and do it better. Because as much as I love those CSN and CSNY records, like, After the Gold Rush is a better album. Harvest is a better album. And he was just like, hey, like, I can do what you do and I can sell as many records as you guys sell, but I can do it by myself. Like, I don't need you. 
you know, and, which is like another incredible thing that Neil Young was able to pull off at this time. Uh, it just blows my mind. Stills must have been like, where were you when we were doing Deja Vu? He must have been listening to all these. I always got the impression that the CSN brought their best songs to CSNY projects, whereas Neil kind of brought ones that seem sort of like uncharacteristically, I'm going to say lightweight, but more lightweight than the stuff that would be on after the gold rush. You know, the songs that ended up on Deja Vu, uh, Helpless and Country Girl. I think he also brought Sea of Madness and Everybody's Alone to the sessions too, which didn't make the cut. But he kind of brought these like more slight poppy songs as if that was like all CSNY deserved. I mean, I think Helpless is like a pretty great song, although I would take most of the songs on After the Gold Rush probably over that one. I mean, yeah. I mean, he did write Ohio for them, which is like maybe their greatest song. So you got to tip the cap there. But yeah, I agree with you. I think it's pretty clear, especially as we get into to like the later albums when we get into like you know American, American Dream. Dream era and like looking forward and you look at like what Neil was doing on his own versus right. like what he was contributing to those records uh yeah it's like pretty clear uh that he was holding things for himself um he's making freedom the same time that he's making American Dream I think exactly I think it was around the same time so yeah so you know so anyway I mean so anyway, he, like he makes Deja Vu with with CSN, and then he does these like just these brilliant solo records that end up being huge hits. And it's almost like you know by like say the mid seventies or so. I mean Neil Young, I think already at that point was probably the biggest star in this galaxy. But he was also still drawn into working with these guys again. Like they started. We talked about this in our Stephen Stills episode about Human Highway. Like how they tried to get that album going. I guess that was like in 73 or so. Yeah, I think at that point, kind of, Neil had was sort of haunted by uh, Danny Witten's death. And he had done the Harvest tour that turned into Time Fades Away, which, you know, was so unpleasant to him that I don't think he allowed it to be, you know, widely available for decades. So he was a kind of a low personal and commercial ebb. And so were the other three in CSNY. Uh, so they went to Maui. And I think it, in Jimmy McDonough's book, they sort of a side mission aside from trying to get the band back together and make a new CSNY album was to try to wean stills off of cocaine. And um, apparently Bruce Barry, who was a, a working man and drove an Econoline van, uh, he was a, a roadie for the group. He showed up uh, with cocaine for apparently for stills and it was a big blow up. They, they sent Bruce back to the mainland uh, where he almost immediately OD'd, I think a couple days later. Oh man. Um, and so th this instigated this, you know, big fight with the group and, and the sessions in Hawaii were, were called off. And they eventually met back up at Neil's ranch in, uh, in Northern California to try to resume sessions on what, what was, you know, tentatively called Human Highway, which I always thought was interesting is that they named it after a Neil song and they went to Neil's ranch to record it. It's always about coming to Neil. And um, they got a couple days into the, uh, the sessions at, on the ranch and Neil just walked. I think he went to David Briggs' house late one night and said, I'm, I'm doing this record with CSN and it's all wrong. I want to make a rock and roll record. And that became Tonight's the Night, which, you know, it's just one of the most agonizing expressions of grief on record. It's like up there with like the Plastic Ono band, just him processing the death of, of Danny Witt and Bruce Barry. Yeah, and, you know, it, it's hard to overstate, like, how great Neil Young was at this time. You know, there's that famous, you know, if you love Neil Young, you know this story about how he had those big successes with After the Gold Rush and Harvest and, of course, working with CSNY. And then he goes into what is known as the ditch period where he's making these really noisy, angry, sad, drunken records like Time Fades Away, Tonight's the Night, On the Beach, 
uh, that are just brilliant. And he's just coming up with tremendous stuff. And, you know, I feel like sometimes like the other guys in the band get like a little bit of a short shrift about like what they were doing at this time. Because I think as we've talked about in like our Crosby and our Stills episode, I still feel like at this point, the other guys were writing good stuff, you know, and they were putting out good albums. I think by, you know, once we get past the mid 70s, things get a little patchier. But, you know, I feel like in a way, like Neil Young sort of fed that perception that these guys in the band like weren't weren't that great, and and truth be told, I mean they were not as good as him. I mean, there's no question of that. No one's going to say that they were keeping pace really with Neil Young at this time. But I just think of like the Doom Tour era, and you know we've talked a lot about the Doom Tour already. It's a great period. I'm, I love the Doom Tour. I know we could just do a whole series on the Doom Tour, as far as I'm concerned. But you know, I I think. Like Neil Young has talked about how on that tour he was disappointed because he felt like, um, you know, they were playing these really long shows and they were introducing new material into those gigs. But like he felt like he was bringing like the most to the table. Um, And if you listen to the tapes of that time, I mean, he had some incredible songs that he was basically debuting on that tour, like Push It Over the Edge is like an incredible song. So many great songs. I feel like the other guys were also like putting up some pretty good stuff, too. But there's no question that Neil Young was like at a real high creatively. I mean, I think most of his discuss with that tour was just with like the decadence of it and like how much they were spending on just stuff they didn't need, like lobster dinners before the show that like no one would eat, you know, that kind of stuff. And I think he ended up Who loads up on lobsters before know, a rock exactly. and roll show. I know it's like you want a bunch of lobster in your stomach and then like you go sing for liquid butter for three hours. It seems awful. And I think by the end of that tour, like the rest of the band was like traveling by jet, and he was like in his like a, a conaline van essentially, right? I mean, wasn't he just kind of going like van life on that tour? Yeah, he was in like a GMC motorhome that I think broke down. It was like such a piece of junk, which is. You know, imagine Neil Young on the side of the road in a uh, in a broken down motorhome is kind of how I prefer to think of Neil Young. But he he wasn't hanging out with the other guys at all at that point. No, no, he was definitely again. Um, you know, they were doing the the rock star trip, and he was basically being like an indie rock guy. Like I I want to do my own thing, you know, be in my own world. And look, I love that tour. I, I that live album that they put out, the CSNY 1974. I think is so good. Um, but I, it just seems like Neil Young was not satisfied. And it seemed like, again, like him and Stills were battling on stage, you know, doing like basically like Spinal Tap, like folk rock edition, like where they're just trying to out like volume each other, like just cranking the amps and, uh, you know, just killing their eardrums basically. Which, yeah, which I mean, then of course you get Crosby and Nash trying to sing over that and it killed their voices. So when you listen to the tapes back, I guess Nash was like almost in tears when he played the tape spec because their voices were just shredded trying to compete with, you know, 100 decibels of Stills and Neil's amps and Marshall Stacks and everything. I mean, the other incredible tour, I guess, from this era that we need to talk about, we, and we talked about this a bit in our Stills episode, but the, the, the Stills Young band debacle that happened. I can't believe that even got as far as it did. I just can't believe that they even like thought that was a good idea in any way, shape or form. Because, I mean, you listen to that record, and I feel like on paper that would have been a cool idea. Like, again, Stills and Young working together. The brothers are back. They're going to work out their tensions. And if they could have, like, somehow, like, channeled the hostility that they had between each other into the music, it could have been incredible. It could have been, like, really edgy and alive and great. And the record itself, I just feel like it's subpar material for the most part from both of those guys, except for the title track, uh, which is this great Neil Young song. 
But then, you know, the other tracks on there are pretty lightweight. And then they ended up going on tour, and then that ended up being a disaster. Oh, yeah. I mean, Neil didn't like it from the beginning because he felt that the band was mostly Steven's people. And it's very, very important for for Neil to be around Neil people. Neil needs (laughs) Neil people at all times. Yes. So from the start, Neil feels like something wasn't working, the balance was off. And the critics weren't very kind. And unfortunately, they were praising Neil, but trashing Stills. I guess there was one headline that was, Young, Hot, Stills, Not. (laughs) Which is hard to imagine that that, format being used in the context of a rock critic review. But anyway. I was going to say, like, Hot or Not existed in the 70s. I feel like that's like an internet meme. You know? They were dropping Hot or Not jokes in the 70s. That's that's, kind of weird. So, so Stills was very much unhappy about being deemed not hot. And he consoled himself with alcohol and cocaine, which made him even more tyrannical than normal. He starts taking it out on the crew, thinking that like the crew is conspiring against him to make him sound bad. This, you know, makes him less than popular with the crew, which then exacerbates his own persecution complex. And it goes round and round and round. One night in, I think, Charlotte, uh, Stills berates the sound guy in front of a packed house. It's like in the middle of the show. And Neil's just horrified by this they uh stills and neil are traveling in separate buses and um i guess the next show is in atlanta and neil goes up to the driver's bus and says all right turn left here well neil we're supposed to go right nope turn left here goes to memphis and catches a plane back to uh to california stills arrives at the hotel in atlanta and finds a telegram for him from neil that says dear steven funny old things that start spontaneously and that way eat a peach Neil. Yes, and we we covered this in our Stills episode, and I think we were looking at it from the perspective of Stills again, just being a corpse on the floor at that point. Um, once <laughs> I again, have no future was his quote. He should have said, you know, this is like the fifth time that Neil Young has murdered me, and I, I just allow it to continue to happen. You know, <laughs> it's like that Tom Cruise movie Edge of Tomorrow. You know, like where he just keeps getting murdered over and over again. Oh, yeah. that's like that should be like the CSNY biopic right there. Um, but, you know, since this is the Neil Young episode, I, you know, looking at it from Neil's perspective, I mean, as like harsh as that is to do to someone who's like your friend, I get where he's coming from if you're looking at it purely from an artistic point of view. Because again, he's on the road promoting a record that's not very good. He's with a guy who's like yelling at the sound guy, overplaying on every song. He's probably thinking in his mind, you know, I can hook up with Crazy Horse. I can hook up with the Stray Gators. I can do something that is like way better than this. I'm in the middle of like one of the greatest runs in rock history in terms of albums. Like I'm I'm just spitting fire left and right. You know, I think of that song Thrasher from Rust Never Sleeps. Where oh, the, yeah. the line in there where he talks about like those guys were dead weight to me. Such a <laughs> devastating song. And, it's basically, and he's talking about CSN. Why? And, you know, I think this is an instance where he's like, I got to cut the dead weight or I'm going to drown, you know? And so from that perspective, I understand it. It's like, you know, yes, he murdered Stephen Stills, but maybe it was self-defense, you know? It's like, he, it's like either him or me, I'll murder him so I can survive. He would defend himself years later. He'd say, you know, I only care about the music. It's sad. Sometimes people are damaged by it. But if people understand me, they understand that when the music is finished with me, I'll be back if you can wait for me. That says it and all. Stills, uh, yeah. So let's flash forward to the 80s. And this is a, please no exactly. This is a dark period, I think, for all involved. Although I feel like, in a way, you could have argued maybe in the early '80s that like CSN had some say daylight again, if you will, with their album 1982's Daylight Again, which was like a pretty big hit record. I mean, Southern Cross is on that record. Wasted on the Way is on that record. Um, so they had this sort of flash of relevance again. 
Whereas Neil Young was really at a low point in terms of his commercial appeal and his critical appeal. And, you know, he was not the Neil Young necessarily that we think of now. Like he, he was pretty marginalized. And in a way, you could say that he was doing it to himself because he put out this sort of wacky series of albums, albums like Everybody's Rockin', Old Ways, Trans, all albums that on some level I enjoy and I appreciate why he did it. But this was the era where famously David Geffen, who owned Neil Young's record label, sued Neil Young for not making Neil Young sounding music, you know, which is <laughs> one of the greatest and most bizarre lawsuits in rock history. But in a way, you could say, like, I understand David Geffen's point of view to a degree. Like, I don't think he should have sued Neil Young, but it is true that, like, Neil Young did not seem quite like himself. And I think that is why he probably ended up hooking up with CSN again. You know, I, I just wonder, like, if on some level he felt like, well, when I joined these guys in 1970, it really helped my career. So maybe it can help my career again here in the late 80s. I mean, do you think there's any validity to that? That's really interesting. I mean, the story that he kind of puts out there is that when uh, CSNY had like a one-off reunion at Live Aid, David Crosby was in such rough shape. And he said, you know, it, it, Cros, if you can get things back together again, I'll join you again for a new album. And at that point, you know, Crosby, it looked unlikely that he would live through the rest of the decade. So it probably thought it would never actually happen. And then in... 86, uh, he, he does get clean in prison. He, get, he gets clean, he gets released. And Neil kind of made it seem like, oh, well, I had to make this new album with the other guys because I said I would, you know, as like a, a sort of be true to my word. But you could tell just by listening to it that his heart wasn't in it. This is American Dream in, uh, I think it was 87. It is a horrendous album. It's a terrible album. And like, it, what's weird to me is like, I think some of the songs are okay, but like, the sound of it is awful. Like the production is is really bad, and like Neil Young is to blame for that because you know he insisted on using his guy at the time, this guy Nico Bolas, who was like this young producer. And I don't know the the story exactly with David Briggs at that point. If he wasn't, you know, it seemed like there was some sort of separation going on with Briggs, who really was the guy working on all the great Neil Young records. Sound. Yeah, and and really, I mean, Briggs passed away in 1995, I think it was, and. I feel like Neil Young's music has not been the same since since Briggs no. passed away. But you know, I, I think they recorded it at his ranch too. Like, didn't they? Yeah. So like, they all came to him. So it's like, oh great! Like Neil Young is taking charge of the sound. This is going to be a little more raw. It's going to sound more real. And it's like this sterile '80s sounding record. And uh, it's really weird because you, you alluded to this earlier. Like Neil Young, around this time, he ended up putting out Freedom that came out in '89. Also working with Nico Bolas, and that ends up being really like his comeback record. And it like heralds the beginning of this great period that he had in the 90s uh, of like this artistic rebirth. Like the 90s is like one of my favorite Neil Young decades. I, I think there's some really great records that came out at that time. And, and Freedom was the beginning of that. And it's like, oh, yeah. why was Freedom so good? An American Dream so bad. It's like, was he intentionally sabotaging them? Like, was this some weird thing? I, I mean, I don't think that's true, but I don't understand, like, how those results could be so different. America Dream had a fucking pan flute on it, Stephen. <laughs> it was, uh, Jesus. How could you allow that to happen? How could you allow that? To, it's like, you're bringing Zamfir in here to play some flute? <laughs> I mean, yeah. I mean, like you said, Freedom, Ragged Glory, Harvest Moon, the 90s run is incredible and csny pretty much you know back burner for him i mean 
And then at the end of the decade, 1999, they made the last the last album that CSNY ever made together, Looking Forward. And it was basically a Crosby, Stills, and Nash record that Neil added three acoustic songs to that, you know, weren't three of his best, in my opinion, Slowpoke and Out of Control. And, and the title track, which again, interesting, they go with a Neil song for the title track. Every project from that he was a part of with CSN from, you know, Human Highway Sessions onward were all named after a Neil song, which I always think is really interesting. Well, and you know, we talked about this before, about how the other guys in the band, like the CSN guys, were terrified of Neil Young, I think, at this point. And we talked about the power of no and at this point, it was almost like it was like the power of the threat of no. You know, they didn't want to alienate him. They didn't want to do anything that would scare him away. So, like, when you read about the tours that they started doing, you know, you mentioned the tour they did in 2000. What was that? The CSNY 2K tour, which is a very cute. What a great dad joke. Yeah. But, you know, they did, like, I think three tours in the aughts. And it just sounds like Neil Young was the boss of those tours. Like, he's the one that really would determine the format. Of course, there was the Living With War tour where he was like really in control of that. But I, I remember reading this story. I can't remember what tour it was from the odds, but there was some story about like how they were playing a show in St. Paul. And after the show, Stephen Stills like wanted to stay behind and take a shower before leaving the arena. And uh, Neil Young had like, like bolted immediately after the show, got into like a luxury SUV and went to the airport and like he said, like he'd let the crew know it's like everyone has to leave immediately. Like I don't want to hang We're around. Leaving. So like Steven Stills didn't take a shower. He left. <laughs> and he's like, all right, boss Neil Young. <laughs> and it was just like oh, it's like I man. it's like I just wonder like when did Steven get to take his shower? Like did he just have to stink <laughs> for like hours before In he could plane. take a shower? This also has to do not just like with sort of Neil Young's stubbornness or his ability to sort of back out of things. It was also money. I mean, he was again. I think in the 90s, you know, because of all the great records he was putting out and also, you know, working with like Pearl Jam and being very, again, smart about positioning himself as like a really kind of youthful elder statesman. Like he was, again, like I think one of the only like 60s people that really appealed to like the younger generation, like like Gen Xers who would maybe like turn up their nose at Woodstock normally. Like they loved Neil Young. It had just, you know, brought him back to being a huge star. And I remember reading David Brown's book, which we've talked about in this series quite a bit, which I recommend everyone reads, called Crosby, Stills, and Nash and Young. There's some quote in there talking about how the difference between playing with Neil and CSN doing their own show is like the difference between like 60 grand a night and 600 grand a night, you know, because they're playing, they're playing arenas with Neil and they're playing theaters without him. So, you know, there was also a huge financial imperative to keep Neil Young happy. The Living With Young tour always really fascinated me, too, because it seemed like they were knowingly kind of like, you know, almost like his opening act in a way or like his, his side men. I think Crosby referred to him as a benevolent dictator on that tour because it was very much like the Neil Young show. It was almost like he was weaponizing nostalgia. He got the guys together so that he could get all these people that loved all their music, you know, the Laurel Canyon ditties in the late 60s and the Woodstock era stuff, and then kind of cast that in stark relief to the, you know, George Bush era post 9-11 uh, world that we were living in. It was almost like he was trolling their the CSNY fans was kind of my impression of it. <laughs> yeah, in a way, it's kind of weird. I mean, I think on the flip side of that, you could see, like, if you watch, there's a there's a concert documentary about that tour called CSNY Deja Vu that Neil Young directed under the name Bernard Shakey. And 
how, you know, there's this famous scene like where they're playing the Living With War songs. I think it's in Atlanta and the crowd just goes like nuts in a bad way. Like they're yelling at the at the band. They're booing. Uh, and this is that's well, the song's called Let's Impeach the President. Yeah, so yeah that's they're not liking it. Yeah, they're not digging that song. And you know, like when you read David Brown's book, it talks about like how rattled Neil Young was by that. Like it was really like he I don't think he was expecting that kind of reaction necessarily like, that strong of a negative reaction. And you know, as much as he was like dogging the other guys in that band over the years, I think you can see at that time that in a way he was leaning on those guys to mm. support him during that. Like, I think it's very telling that he didn't tour that record on his own. I think in some way he wanted other guys up there with him that would take the heat with him, you know? And it says something about the relationship with these guys. Like, you know, we've gone over all the craziness that's gone on with them, but there is this sort of weird loyalty that existed for a long time where they would support each other in situations like that. Even Neil Young, who was very cynical about this band, like he, I think, was relying on that uh, on that tour. That's interesting. I, I always thought that it was basically he tapped the other guys because he knew that would appeal to a certain demographic of a certain age who, you know, presumably shared a similar, you know, mindset in the late 60s of, of peace, love, Woodstock, hippiedom kind of thing. And would kind of rub their noses in maybe what how far their current beliefs are you know, in 2005, 2006, Bush-era Iraq war type, you know, supporters and kind of make them confront who they were with who they were now. But you're right. I mean, it's funny to think that he might actually feel as though he needed somebody to uh, to bear the brunt of all that abuse, too. Well, and that thing you just said, I'm sure that's true, too. As we've said many times about Neil Young, he's a man of paradoxes. Mm. I'm sure he wanted to provoke that audience and also maybe bask in the comfort of being with his old bandmates. I still think it's interesting that it's so it's sort of fitting that, you know, for all of the the fights that Neil and Stephen had for, you know, 45, 50 years, it was Crosby who ended up detonating the group seemingly for good, I would say. Yeah, it seems like that. And, you know, we talked about that in our Crosby episode, the whole Daryl Hannah incident. Poisonous predator. A poisonous predator. And it sounds like, I mean... It sounds like he's like apologized for that. Uh, I think he's done it publicly. It sounds like he called Neil Young at some point and apologized for it. But, you know, that pissed off Neil. And it like, feels like Crosby pissed off everybody like with that and other things over the years. And, you know, you just wonder like at some point if the usefulness of this brand just kind of like runs out of gas a little bit, you mm. know, like. You know, we've talked about how I think for all of these guys, the CSN and CSNY banner, it would be like a shelter that they could go to. And, you know, it was a financial shelter. It was like an emotional support shelter. You know, it was, you know, it was almost like a well to use. I, I keep using different metaphors here. I said a shelter. I'm going to say a well now that you could dip into and uh, replenish yourself and then go back out in the world. And maybe that just maybe the well ran dry eventually. And, and this was the sign of that. Yeah, maybe. I mean, I. I do love the, the most heartwarming part of I think this whole story is the sort of rekindled relationship between Neil and Stephen. And Neil, you know, for all of his his quirks and, and his mercurial nature, I think understands Stephen better than anyone. I mean, you know, I think Noel Gallagher once said to Liam, you know, I can play him like a slightly disused arcade game. And I think Neil <laughs> can play Stephen like a slightly disused arcade game in ways that benefits himself, but he also, I think, genuinely loves him. There was a great quote that Neil gave, I think it was in the Jimmy McDonough book, where he, probably the most insightful uh, statement I've ever seen about Stephen Stills. He said, you know, he's a real sensitive guy, sensitive. 
He had to get himself together, and how he gets himself together is he tries to take over the world. But I'll tell you, he's just nervous. I can see that. You take away all the insecurity and all the things that have made Steven do some of the stuff he's done over the years, and there's a wonderful human being who's right there. I always see the real Steven in there, and he's a really great guy. What strikes me listening to that quote is how he emphasizes how sensitive Steven Stills is. Because, again, I think if you look at those guys superficially, you think Steven Stills is the gruff bully, and Neil Young is like the sensitive eccentric. And not that Neil Young is a bully, but he is a lot tougher, I think, than you know, maybe his persona suggests, you know, like that guy, I think, again, was along with being you know, this guy who's always going to follow his muse and be art first. I just think he's such a genius in how he's maneuvered his career, you know, in the same way that people like Bob Dylan are, you know, or Springsteen, anyone who's stuck around that long. You really do have to have the ability to be lots of different things at once. And I think that's something that we've seen over and over again with Neil Young. We're going to take a quick break to get a word from our sponsor before we get to more Rivals. My name is Johnny B. Good, and I'm the host of the new podcast, Creating a Con, the story of BitCon. Over this nine-part series, I'll explore the life and crimes of my best friend, Ray Trapani. I always wanted to be a criminal. If someone's like, oh, what's your best way of making money? I'm like, oh, we should start some sort of scheme. You see, Ray has this unique ability to find loopholes and exploit them. They collected $30 million. There were headlines about it. His company, Centratech, was one of the hottest crypto startups in 2017. It was going to change the world, until it didn't. I came into my office, opened my email, and the subject heading was FBI request. It was only a matter of time before the truth came out. You can only fake it till you make it for so long before they find out that your Harvard degree is not so crimson. How could you sit there and do something that you know will objectively cause more harm in the world? Listen to Creating a Con, the story of BitCon, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I am the ferryman. In the shadows of the afterlife, the Ferryman of Souls guides America's most influential spirits to their eternal rest. Where are you taking me? Are you death? This road is not on any map. How much for a ticket? All I ask for in payment is a tale. I don't know who got to Kennedy first. And the devastation those first bombs caused. I've never been to hell, but I know intimately the hymns of the damned. All 12 episodes of The Passage are available now. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. I never thought I'd take my three young kids to Sicily to solve a century-old mystery, but that's what I'm doing in my new podcast, The Sicilian Inheritance. Join us as we travel thousands of miles on the beautiful and crazy island of Sicily as I trace my roots back through a mystery for the ages and untangle clues within my family's origin story, which has morphed like a game of telephone through the generations. Was our family matriarch killed in a land deal gone wrong? Or was it by the Sicilian Mafia? A lover's quarrel? Or was she, as my father believed, a witch? Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
So this is the part of the show where we give the pro side of each part of the rivalry. We'll talk about the pro Neil Young side first. I mean, look, do we have to say anything more than Neil Young is Neil Young? <laughs> I mean, it's Neil Young for crying out loud. He's like one of the greats of all time. And as much as I love the other guys in Crosby, Stills, and Nash, there's no question that Neil Young towers over them artistically. I mean, he towers over most people in rock history artistically. And I think what he brought to this band was, you know, a certain relevance, I think, that they did not have after, say, 1975. You know, it's like if if he was involved in this band in the 90s or, or 2000s, 2010s, as like spotty as like their output could be, you're more likely to pay attention if Neil Young is on board. It's like the possibility that it could be great, even though you're more likely to get like American Dream or Looking Forward. <laughs> like you still feel like, oh, it could be great if Neil Young is involved. That that is the thing that he that he brings uh, to this band. And uh, I just go back to to that that thing about after the Gold Rush and, and Harvest. I I'm just blown away now even to this day that he was able to take what this band did and do it on his own and prove that I can do it on my own better than you guys can do it. So we don't really need you. People are just going to want me. <laughs> and I think that's proven <laughs> to be true over the last 50 years. It's like Neil Young. It's like if you think of beautiful songs with harmonies, yeah, you think of CSN, but you maybe think of Neil Young first and you're going to put on Harvest before you put on a CSN record. And you know that's the genius of Neil Young. It's really crazy to think that his entire recorded legacy with CSNY really is just rests on three songs, Country Girl, Helpless, and Ohio. You know, nobody ever mentions anything on American Dream and looking forward. And if they do, they do it in a, you know, with an asterisk next to it. Um, it, it's amazing that sort of, like you said, the reputation that he gave that band just on the strength of those three songs alone. And you said 1975 was when he started giving them relevance. I would almost argue even earlier that sort of he was what the band needed as sort of the Woodstock age transitioned into the Watergate era. I think it was, you know, Ohio was, I think, that transitional point for them. And there was a great, I think it was Elliot Roberts quote. It said, you know, he gave the band balls. Neil Young's got balls dripping down his back, his shoulders, his <laughs> legs everywhere. He's got balls to spare. And I think, you know, rather than being sort of like a hippie Everly Brothers, Birds, Fusion, Harmony group, I think, yeah, it did give him that weightiness that, that helped him endure. Balls dripping down his back. I'm not sure how I feel about that. It's Elliot a grotesque Roberts. quote, yeah. <laughs> Drippy balls, Neil Young, <laughs> as he's known. That's his next uh, album. So if we go to the pro-CSN side or the anti-Neil Young side, you know, I would say, again, I think Neil Young, you know, and not to his credit, really, I think he often was, like, openly disrespectful to the other guys in CSN, and I feel like that's kind of crappy on his behalf because, again, as we've established, I really feel like early in his career, joining this band was a pivotal moment for him becoming a big star. If he hadn't have had that platform early on, I wonder if he would have remained more of a cult hero of like 70s L.A. rock than like the big star that we know and love today. Uh, so I think for that reason, you know, I would hope that he would have a little more reverence for like what those guys did uh, for his career and like the, the kind of audience, I guess, that he was able to bring into there. Um, and I would just say in general, too, you know, I know I had this this bias for a long time that like I thought Neil Young was was the greatest, and that the other three guys, the CSN guys, were lame. And I didn't care about what they did. And I, and for a long time, I didn't even like pay attention to their work. And when I finally dug in, I was really kind of blown away by like all the great music that 
Crosby, Stills, and Nash made on their own and made a different, you know, permutations, uh, you know, throughout the years. And I guess I hope that if you are one of those people that don't really take the CSN part of CSNY seriously, that you were inspired by this series to check those guys out. Because, yeah, they're not as good as Neil Young. But I think that they made a lot of great music on their own. And uh, they deserve to stand on stage with Neil Young at all those great shows. Which you can't say about many people. Yeah, exactly. No, I, I, I echo that. I, I think that Stills sort of in, in the in the Lennon-McCartney dichotomy that I tend to view the world through, I think Stills was the McCartney figure, the kind of workaholic who taskmaster who could sort of smooth out Neil's rough edges and, and make things more commercial than it would ordinarily be. I think that was kind of in the very, very early days. Uh, maybe Stills thought that uh, he could sort of package Neil in, in the way that he wasn't able to really do in um, – in Buffalo Springfield. And obviously that didn't work out, but I, I would like to think that, like you said, maybe Neil learned a thing or two by watching stills up close, doing the, uh, working on deja vu together, which he then could put into, uh, into after the gold rush and harvest. And also, like you said, Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young was a huge platform for him. And I think that if, if he wasn't in that group, he probably would have been like a, you know, a Gene Clark figure or a Graham Parsons, like an LA fringe rock early 70s guy who, you know, made strong records, but, you know, would have been like his his solo debut, which, you know, no one really talks about now, even though I love. Um, yeah, I, I think that the the appropriate reverence for his fellow bandmates is probably where uh, my only real fault with him at this point. I think that he has been disrespectful for him over the years, either interpersonally and publicly, which, again, makes me happier that at least he and Stills have seemed to patch things up now. So when we look at all these guys together, I mean, look, as we've shown, I think, in this series, this band is like so full of drama and intrigue. And you don't get that without this unique mix of personalities and talents. You know, like CSN was already combustible on its own. But then you add Y to the mix and it just like just blew everything sky high. And I know for me personally, it's been a blast digging into the history of this band. And uh, I'm just so glad that we've had the music and the madness. Absolutely. Sometimes at the end of these episodes, we try to figure out whether these artists should be together or shouldn't be together. And you know, in this case, I think I'm torn. As much as I, I love the music they made together, sometimes I think maybe they should be apart, but I love the music just too much. Maybe, maybe I'm the Steven Stills in this scenario. I just, I can't quit them. I don't want them to quit each other. Well, it's been fun getting wasted on the way with you, Jordan, <laughs> on this journey. But, like, I feel that it's probably time for us to talk about a different rivalry other than what exists in the CSNY-verse. So if we must. next week, we're going to be heading out, out of this place and going to a different rivalry, and we can't wait to do it. So thank you again for listening to this episode. We'll have more beefs and rivalries and long-simmering resentments next week. Rivals is a production of iHeartRadio. The executive producers are Sean Titone and Noel Brown. The supervising producers are Taylor Shacoin and Tristan McNeil. The producer is Joel Hatstack. I'm Jordan Runtog. And I'm Stephen Hyden. If you like what you heard, please subscribe and leave us a review. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. I'm Johnny B. Good the host of the podcast, Creating a Con, the story of BitCon. This podcast dives deep into the story of Ray Trapani and his company, Centratech. I'll explore how three 20-somethings built a company out of lies, deceit, and greed. 
I've been saying since a very young age that I was going to be a millionaire. If someone's like, oh, what's your best way of making money? I'm like, oh, we should start some sort of scheme. Listen to Creating a Con, the story of Bitcoin, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I am the ferryman. In the shadows of the afterlife, the ferryman of souls guides America's most influential spirits to their eternal rest. Where are you taking me? Are you death? This road is not on any map. How much for a ticket? All I ask for in payment is a tail. I don't know who got to Kennedy first. And the devastation those first bombs caused. I've never been to hell, but I know intimately the hymns of the damned. Binge the season of The Passage now. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Listen to the highly anticipated 100th episode of Tank and Jay Valentine's R&B Money Podcast with artist Chris Brown. Even working with you from Carrie Hilson, Adonis. Mm-hmm. Back in the day, I was 15, 14 doing that album. So like I said, I was in school like, yeah. okay, this is how you do it. This is how you make a song. There's a verse, a pre-chorus, and then a hook. I didn't know none of that. You learned I, that over a summer, bro. That's what I, it felt like. That's what it felt like. Listen to R&B Money on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts.